0: Welcome to The Closed Session, How to Get Paid in Silicon Valley, with your host, Tom Chavez and Vivek Vedya.
1: Welcome back to another episode of Season 4 of The Closed Session podcast. I'm Tom Chavez. And I'm Vivek Vedya.: Today, the, I'm excited to have Rex Briggs with us. We've had a chance to work with, Briggs. Yes. with Rex along the way. Uh, Rex is an author, public speaker, consultant and an absolute expert in measuring marketing ROI, leveraging advancements in tech to reshape the industry, a place where you and I have dwelled very meaningfully Deeply. over the last yes. couple of decades. So <laughs> you can run, but you can't hide from Rex Briggs. He's everywhere in ad tech, Martech and modern uh, developments in in how uh, AI has the opportunity to, to reshape uh, legacy marketing. We're going to get into some of that here as we go. So Rex, so great to have you with us. Welcome.
0: Uh, it's good to be with you guys again. Thrilled to have you with us
1: here today, Rex. Let's dive right in. Let's do it. So, Rex, uh, would love to have you just back it up for us a little bit here for, for our listeners. You've been at this a while, and so, you know, how did you get into marketing ROI? Because, you know, you are kind of, I don't want to sound too, too uh, breathless about it, but you're kind of the OG of marketing our ROI. So back it up and tell us how you got into this in the first place. How did this interest take root?
2: You know, I started at Yankalovich Partners before the internet. And, uh, and so we were doing segmentation and the goal was to create segments of one, which is pure, purely theoretical at that point. Right. But the idea was, man, if you could talk to an individual and understand their hopes and their dreams and their fears and their aspirations, man, you could connect with them and you could serve what they really wanted uh, from a business.
1: And what, so One-to-one with, marketing, right? Way back in the nineties. Who was Yes, that? before before Don
2: Peppers there and Martha Rogers, but one-to-one right. future. Peppers and Rogers, um, that's right. That's right, and so uh, what was what happened was I happened to be doing a study uh, for Intel. Uh, actually, it was for IBM. It was about the Intel Pentium chip, which couldn't do math. Kids might remember that vaguely. <laughs> That's right. Back
1: Arithmetic get problems and, in the chipset.
2: Yeah, and you know, Intel was saying, "Look, this is not a problem except for this tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of people that need that level of precision in our floating point math." Right. But it was still hurting sales for their chip. And so IBM was doing research, trying to figure out what implications would it have. I was doing the research uh, on their behalf. And midway through that point, Intel decided that they were going to, to reverse directions and they were going to replace that chip. And so, well, in the research and the data, there wasn't a World Wide Web yet, but there was CompuServe, and that's where the IT tech people would go to get information on this listserv. And we could see people who were part of that listserv change their opinions within 48 hours of the announcement. Uh-huh. We had never seen anything like that before. It used to take weeks and weeks. In fact, there were diffusion models that would tell you how communication would filter through the population. Mm-hmm. And so when I saw that, I'm like, "Wow!" I've, I've seen Prodigy before. My my dad was a computer, you know, database guy and, and used it and so forth. But it made me realize it was going to change marketing. Hmm. And so, you know, fast forward a little bit uh, later, you know, uh, yeah, I created the first study to, uh, to when the web was launched to figure out who these people were that were adopting this tool. Um, Luis Rosetto, the founder of Wired, recruited me to be the first director of research. And all of a sudden, I'm sitting on the other side, which is people are asking me, what is this ad worth? Hmm. And uh, is there anything besides a click-through that we get from this? And how do we know what the value was? And that's when I began to create the first Lyft study to create a control and expose group and figure out what impact that had. And, um, and then it was about, well, okay, after we did that study and prove that online advertising worked. 1996 and 1997 with the IB study, the next logical question was, but should I reallocate money from television to digital, from magazines to digital, which one gives me the better ROI? Hmm. And to answer that question, I had to invent multi-touch attribution Hmm. to try to connect to that information. So, I mean, that, that, that was really the process is you get confronted with a challenge to, uh, to answer a question for business, to make things um, logically line up to make a good decision. And you have to invent new tools and new capabilities to do that sometimes.
0: Well, yeah. So you've obviously uh, went, go way back in terms of leveraging data and uh, in ad- advertising and marketing. So can you share a little bit about your perspective on the connection between marketing tech and data? What kinds of data were you using? How did, how did you collect it? What did that process look like? Well, some of it's quite
2: shocking how long it takes for an industry to adopt a good idea. <laughs> I mean, if you think about the, if you think about the internet, you're thinking, we actually knew that, uh, that the advertising on the internet had value in 1996. And by 1997, we had expanded to, to measure, you know, 13 different industries but it took another 8 years before you really began to see the curves and the cycles taking off and we had behavioral targeting by 1996 in fact we I, I the first study where i used neural networks to try to to change the content that was being served on the wired site was in 1996 as well so you look at how long does it take then to have that adoption and oftentimes it's not a martech t- uh you know challenge gap It's an education gap and a business decision-making gap. So, you know, it's remarkable how much data and information we had decades ago, and yet we're really only starting to grapple with how to effectively manage it today. It does remind me a little bit of the Industrial Revolution story of the first factories that were built with the steam engines were still organized the same way that you'd organize a factory along a river if you had a water wheel.
0: Oh, yeah. But
2: you weren't constrained to a water wheel anymore. So why were you still designing it that way? Mm -hmm. And we really have had that for the last decade to two decades in marketing, which is why are we still designing marketing as if we don't have the internet and one-to-one connections and communications? So I feel like we're finally turning the corner on that part. Uh, It's not that the data has changed. It's that some of the, though it has gotten better, it's some of the mentality has changed and the generation of people running marketing grew up with this data and this technology.
1: So, I'll, I want to pick that up a little bit, Rex, because you have been here from the get. Um, it's not, you know, you are the inventor of media mix modeling, multi touch attribution, measurement of, of ad advocacy and, and its value, its open market value. I mean, this is, and, and so you're pointing out that it takes a long time, it seems, for organizations to sort of metabolize the possibility right at hand. Why, you know, on the one hand, yeah, it's encouraging that it happens. On the other hand, for people like us, you know, who've been excited about what, what we know the technology can enable today, that latency is damn frustrating, right? The time it takes for, for organizations to get off their duffs and actually do it. What's your theory? What, why why yeah, is well, it why yeah, so first- slow?
2: First, a quick correction. I, I didn't invent marketing mix modeling. That was uh, Professor Little in 1972. And what's even more depressing is it took till the mid 80s until that was adopted. So it's not like this is the first time that things only a have decade slow. I was. I mean, I was the first person and I did have a patent for how do you put digital advertising into a marketing mix model. Uh, and but again, even that took that was in 2002 for PNG and and J and J and a couple of other brands we worked with, and it's taken it took another ten years before that was broadly adopted. So you have these this long lag, and so the question I've asked again and again is how do you shorten shorten that cycle? And I do think this is where ROI becomes really important because if you can show the financial impact much faster, uh, to then people adopt much more quickly. If they have to wait months to understand the return on investment, or it isn't tangible, it isn't direct, then there's a lot of places for people to hide who don't want to change. But if you have black and white, here is how many more sales you will get. Here mm. is how many more customers you will attract. It's a lot harder to hide from that. And uh and it gives the ammunition to the people who are the change agents that want to move faster. So yeah, you know, I, I think we've made a lot of progress. The cycles are getting shorter. I mean I also did some of the original research on social media when, when actually when it was MySpace before Facebook was even open to the public, that model was repeated uh, by, by Facebook and that helped them accelerate how much dollars moved in that space. We did the work with Greg Stewart at MMA Global on mobile and that shortened that cycle. And I think this cycle with AI, working with arts AI, and you know, I introduced and connected them with Claritas, and here, here's a news flash that uh, you'll read about tomorrow morning. They merged, mm. so they will be bringing that technology to their customers. And I think that that, if you have the enablement and you have the speed of this information, with black and white ROI, I mean they they can now do like a money back guarantee, which is like if you don't see this much lift or payback, oh, you wow. will get your your budget back. So I mean I think that that makes it a, adoption happen a lot faster.
1: So it's speeding up is what I'm hearing you say.
2: It should, but I think we should still ask the question, how do we go faster? And um, I don't fully know that answer. I know what we're trying to do. What I've seen cycle on cycle is that if you can get a consortium of marketers to do it together and publicly share that information, I mean, this is really what Greg Stewart's model is at MMA Global, is bringing these consortiums together, getting them to share it, getting them to stand on stage and be public about it, then it puts it gives um, it puts pressure on others to move faster, and it also gives um, safety because you can look and say, "Hey, it's not just our results that were good, but look at you know Kroger or look at ADT or mm-hmm. look at monday.com. and the, they also had strong results, and and therefore we have more confidence to move faster. So I think that that's a big part of the formula. It's more human psychology than frankly it is data and uh, and reporting.
0: That makes sense. But let's come back to the data bit for just a minute, uh, Rex, and go back to your cross-media research, which was the first of its kind back in the day. And that's when you said you invented multi-touch attribution, which kind of combined different, uh, studied the impact of different forms of channels of advertising. What... um, what what role did data play? What kinds of data did you collect, and what was the process that you followed to collect the data that went into the study? Uh, if you yeah, can you re- know, recall, the the key the key parts for the data uh, that that
2: were really, you know, in my view, there was three parts that we needed to get together. We needed to understand the full funnel, so we needed to know attitudinally uh, whether there was a shift in Uh, in favorability, brand perceptions, a brand I love, you know, these types of things. And we need to understand how that's correlated with uh, behavior at the bottom of the funnel, like which of these things really explained why someone bought or didn't buy that product. Because within that, there's an interesting insight, which is that there are things that people overstate and they believe influence their, their brand, usually the physical attributes of the product. And then there's these emotional and social cues that they understate. But if you have both of that data, you can correlate how those understated, uh, you know, the brand that, that's growing more popular. I don't think that's important for how yeah. I buy. You know, maybe you buy that way, but I don't buy that way. But right. turns out that when we correlate the data and see what you actually buy, you care a lot about more about social proof than you would believe. Hmm. So I thought... The attitudinal part and then the behavioral part was critical. We had to be able to connect to offline sales. Mm. It wasn't good enough to have purchase intent increase. We need to see actual. You know, we measured for Ford F one hundred and fifty. That was one of the academic papers that was published in I think two thousand four. We needed to know how many trucks were, were sold. sold. Yeah, we could directly connect back to an online. In order to really know the incrementality, you had to have a control group so that you could see what would have happened if you didn't serve them an ad, but they were still on that same web page. And so really, when we think about the overall data measurement, we think of both the the data that you need, the attitudinal and survey data, the behavioral data, the ability to correlate the two, because people tend to understate the uh, social impact of something, but they overstate the functional reasons. Mm. Uh, and so, but if you have both the questions about why did you buy, and then you know whether or not they bought or not, how, and you ask them how important are these variables about, you know, is it a brand that's going more popular or a brand your friends would drive or a brand that gets, you know, good fuel economy or whatever, people say, oh, fuel economy is really important. <laughs> Turns out not as important as you say it is, Mr. Buying the F-150. Exactly. It's growing more popular. Um, So you can connect those data. And then the other part is profile data. Because if you see someone who's reached by the ads, and then they visit the webpage or they learn more information, but then they don't buy, why not? What's the difference in the profile between those people? And that's where you unlock the insights about how do you, maybe change the uh, change the message or change the audience. And frankly, that's really where the AI is getting really exciting. And we can maybe talk about that later on is that we can now, with all that data, automate that entire loop. Right.
1: Well, in an earlier podcast, uh, we were interviewing Seth uh, Stevens-Davidowitz, who's the author of Everyone Lies. And so exactly to your last point about what F-150 Ford, F-150 buyers say versus what they actually do, what they think they care about versus what they really, in fact, care about as evidenced by their buying decisions, right? What it reminds me of now is, okay, there are these pesky human beings on the other side of the screen buying and doing things. And as these strategies become ever more sophisticated, it feels like we're bumping up against a line of, wow, you can get very personal. It, it's, it's one, is it one-to-one? I don't know if it's one-to-one, but we're getting deep into the nooks and crannies of what people actually think and do, which naturally, um, calls to mind a set of, of privacy concerns, right? So how do you think about how much information is too much information? Should market, do marketers actually care as the whole planet tilts towards broader regulations for privacy? Well, it's certainly in Europe and California, where we live, many, many other places, is it a, is it a tempest in a teapot should marketers or, or is it, or is it just a momentary little flash in the pan and it'll pass? How should we be thinking about these things and do marketers actually care?
2: Yeah, I think that there's two layers that I'd like to talk about. One is on the first layer, it's important to recognize that I don't need to have data that's perfect about you specifically to connect with you. I need, I need signal uh, and I can still have some noise. So when we were working on Lexus as a brand, the you know the data brokers, for example, gave us the target of people who were uh, highly likely to buy a luxury car. Well, it turned out that their 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 target audience of who they are giving us was twice the size of all the people who are in market to buy a luxury car. Mm-hmm. And so you know at first I'm like, well, that data can't. Half of that data has to be wrong because I know how many are sold each year, and it's not that number. That's much you know it's a much smaller number. But as I looked deeper into it, what really mattered was as I looked at their data, I'm like, actually, the data is pretty good because this population, this audience has an index of 300%. They're three times more likely to buy a luxury car than if I just grabbed someone at random. Hmm. So there was signal in that data, even though it wasn't perfect. So there's quite a lot that we can do with AI and analytics that doesn't require uh, privacy or specific personal data. We can do it with cohort data. We can do it with with information that, that's aggregated, that, that has signal to it. So that's the first layer, I think, to understand is that these things can get very, very good even without PII data. The second part is I have thought from the time I was director of research at Wired uh, to today that consumers really should uh, have more control over their data, and I've seen many attempts to try to get zero-party data, maybe this next wave, you know, we'll finally see that happen. I haven't seen the business model pull that off yet, but I am hoping, I am cheering for for, for a team, give consumers control of their own data, let them benefit from that data as well. Um, I personally have, uh, I never got COVID-19 but I did get 19 pounds during COVID. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to lose that. And if their marketers knew that and could help uh, position and message to me things that would be healthier for my lifestyle or would help me achieve that goal, I would love that. Yeah. And so there are a lot of things where I think if we're connected with data and information, we can share that in a way that brings us the, you know, the type of... Outcomes that we want—that could be a really beneficial ecosystem.
1: Well, going back to the, the mid 1990s and, and to the point you just raised, Rex, I remember Bill Gates wrote a book called *The Road Ahead* in 1996-ish. Do you recall that book? And, and I do recall it, that. Yeah. Right? He was—he was for telling the emergence of a data economy wherein individual uh, consumers could say, "Nope, I will. If you want to market to me, I'm going to control my data signature, and you're going to pay me." for these bits of data. So exactly to the point that you just made, you know, we, a lot of us, including Bill Gates and many others have had this vision of data control for the consumer.
2: It remains so elusive,
1: right? I mean- Yeah, it does.
2: And, and you know, they bought Firefly, which was the technology they used to try to create their passport. And they, they, they can pull it off and they had all the resources of Microsoft. Yeah. It may have been too early. It may have been just the, the execution wasn't quite right. But I do think I do think that we're about to enter a whole new phase with a whole new media. And that media, in my opinion, is going to be an agent, an AI agent that knows us and that interacts with us. And really, look, you want to know where technology is going with with uh, Internet? Always look at porn first, because that's where these (laughs) things happen first. Right. And right now, there are people who are paying good money to chat with a virtual AI, flirt with them, have sexy talk, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, is, that is giving a tremendous amount of data about uh, who you are and what you want, right. maybe in a very specific, narrow sense. <laughs> but if you imagine that there might also be one who's your buddy who's watching the sports game and giving you tips. For your fantasy football league, about which players you should uh, go for or whatever, we already have agents that are helping us book travel and other things. And those agents will learn enough about us to where they can also have host read-ins, pretty much advertising to us, right? So why not figure out in this next wave a mechanism as we build these agents to where you have control over that data? I'm working with my my son Jared, who's uh, in college. He's a junior, and this is an entrepreneurial idea that he's working with, which is: can I create agents, and could you have control over that data, or have a different kind of model when you create that? Um, I'm sure lots of other people will have something similar, and we'll see, you know, which of those ideas win. But you know, that that's one way in which you might end up in a world where consumers do have control over their data because people build in the business model from day one, rather than what Bill Gates was doing back you know in the internet after it started taking off trying to bolt it on after the fact right. so i do think we have to catch it in a generational change and have it built in from the beginning for it to, for that idea of consumers in control their data to take off and even then it might not work It might be the right. consumers just don't care i think they care i think they should care i think us close to the data look at and say you should care but but maybe they don't. I think
1: yeah, sorry. The,
0: sorry. Uh, the interesting thing over there is a lot of these ideas you talked about with agents, right? Like some of them are actually useful in that they save you time, like an agent that books travel for you. And some of them are uh 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 vanity uh tools, like oh, I have this this agent that is telling me how to change my fantasy football team. Uh uh, line up or or whatever in real time if I if I can right. So I think the the interesting thing over there would be to see which agents can can you can you uh, combine a set of agents into a business because because individually each of them could be useful but then is it is it worth building a business on? I think that's that's where the key uh, question is in my mind at least.
2: Absolutely, and if you think about it, what is a TV network? but a collection of different media programs and so forth. So why couldn't you have a business that is a collection of different agents and modalities and relationships? So I think that there's going to be a lot of exciting space. Eventually someone will come by and maybe consolidate the space and create a network of agents and data. And I think if you do it with consumer design in the beginning where they are going to own their data and they're going to have the right to say who does or doesn't have permission to use this and market it, that could be really interesting. Uh, and you might even have an agent that, that's smart enough to help you advise on which things you should turn right. on or yeah. turn on.
1: We're looking at AI avatar projects inside Superset right now, and none of them are are porn-related. But, you know, semi-earnestly picking up on a joke that Chris Rock made where he said, listen, I don't want to go on any more, any more first dates. Nobody should go on first dates. You should just send a representative. Well, in the realm of data, why not just send my my avatar? <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) To your point, Vivek, get some useful information, see if our avatars like each other. And is this actually worth, uh, you know, $3 and 50 cents on a, on a cup of coffee?
2: Yeah, exactly. And there are, there are agents right now that, uh, that, well, first of all, in the darker side of dating there are people who are already using ai to help them do the flirting part of it and then they they go in for the date later on right. and you know th- that was a controversial story that was posted maybe a year or so ago about uh, about a company doing that and they weren't disclosing that it was ai behind so i think the challenge as we enter this new phase is how how do we have transparency and still have authenticity and how does that balance in connection I mean, Google got their hand slapped with duplex, which people thought was great when it first came out. Oh, man, you've got this thing that's calling and making an appointment for my my hair appointment. And it even pauses and says, um, uh, it sounds very (laughs) natural, (laughs) but it's a robot. Uh, So, you know, then after all the applause uh, died out and people said, well, ethically, is that such a good idea? you know, they, they put the brakes on and said, well, we'll figure out how to disclose. So I think we're in that weird space in society, in the uncanny Valley, where we don't really know how to signal. Right. There was years ago, a robotic performer that had an actual bladder in that had air coming out and they blew a horn and it sounded incredibly analog and human-like because it was designed to be that. And at the end of the performance, which was an amazing performance, people like do we clap? I mean, does a robot need applause? And so we're in that space where we don't really know how to interact yet. Yeah,
1: no, I mean, we're all figuring it out. The social norms are very strange. I don't know where we land, but I do look forward to the day, Rex, in about 10 to 15 years where I get to go to a party and somebody's scolding me for something naughty or saucy that, that that I did or said. And I'll say, listen, my avatar did that. I had nothing to do with it. And I, I, on behalf of my avatar, I want to apologize profusely. Yeah. We're but, headed there.
0: Yeah, but yes, but take that to just a little, take that a little further mm. and your uh, avatar does something or says something right. that results in something terrible happening.
1: Are you liable? I know. I mean, and that's, that's the world <laughs> we're hurtling into. It's hard. I'm, I'm being a little cheeky and it's perilous. I agree with yeah. you. Yeah, well, it
2: is. In, uh, in the other project I have with Jared's twin brother, Caleb, Caleb uh, was the primary author in the book "The AI Conundrum," and uh, and as we co-wrote the very last chapter together, what I, I couldn't sleep at night because I'm thinking about the implications of anonymous autonomous AI, these agents, and my fear is that if they're anonymous, uh, we don't have a responsible party attached to them. Yeah, exactly. So, like I think your point is that we actually do need to have a uh, an an identity system for AI yeah. that is uh, attached to an individual who has authenticated ID, who is accountable and responsible for the actions or a company that's accountable and responsible for the actions. Now the challenge is if you go that, there then we've just removed a tremendous amount of privacy, because if the AI has to have identity and authentic connection that we can trace back to what they do. So do humans, because you have to be able to, to track it everything to be able to have that system work. So I think we're going to get to a place where we have to really have the debate about what is the risk and perils of giving up privacy for identity yeah. in this AI world or are we okay with things like chaos gpt which is that you know the ai that was programmed to try to manipulate humanity and destroy humanity and you know within I mean that that came out less than a week after the first autonomous agents were being put, you know, to connected to GPT, three point five. I think in that in that version, and here it was trying to get the nuclear bomb to destroy humanity. And when it couldn't do that, it went through the logic and said, "What's the second most destructive thing I can do?" It opened a Twitter account.
0: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but actually, you don't even have to go that far and ima- in, in imagine crazy use cases like that, right? Let's go back to the travel. Uh... Uh, agent, right? And if if that travel agent is acting on your behalf, and if you haven't specified the right constraints, it ends up booking a ticket for you that costs ten thousand dollars, and suddenly you have to pay because it's you, it's acting on your behalf, and now suddenly you're in this fight with the credit card company and the the airline that hey, I didn't book the ticket, my 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 avatar did, but it yeah. did it on your behalf. So who's liable? right? That's right. So ultimately, I think we have to have a model where you are responsible for your AI. Yeah. And then then if you do that, then you're right back to, it needs human identity. Yes.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So I think that that is actually going to be the the big issue that we have to contend with very relatively quickly. Um, I mean, the other one is authentic content creation. And you know, we will have more and more AI content coming at us, and the watermark ideas that the AI companies have said are, you know, help them you know, cover their ass, but actually doesn't do anything to protect humanity because any organization that wants to do something malicious with AI content simply won't use the watermarked mm-hmm. version. Mm-hmm. So I think what we have to do is we have to flip the model and says that all authentic content Needs has a trust mark on it, yeah. and if you don't see that trust mark. Then you should question whether or not it's uh, it's synthetic or created by by AI. And if it is created by AI, but a scrupulous AI, it will have a trust mark, and you can see that you know it's it's different than the than the the non AI generated. Which, which, so,
1: which works that, just that great? That must
2: happen pretty soon before our elections start rolling through. <laughs> which,
1: which will work just great right up into the moment until an unscrupulous AI learns how to fake the watermark.
2: Right. Yeah. So. Yes. And that's a really interesting part, which is how do you do a zero trust system? And the good news, though, is I think because of uh, I, I'm not a big cryptocurrency person, but I do like some of the blockchain capabilities of doing zero trust uh, authentication and tracing. And so, yeah, but but you yeah, you're right. I mean, the the model then becomes, OK, if I see something that has been uploaded into Meta, uh, and I see the trust mark, and I click on that. Then I really have to trust that Meta did its validation of the content before it came up in that chain. That's not actually hard technology. That technology exists with blockchain right now. With right. Uh, um, so I think that that part's solvable. I think the harder part is getting people to adopt fast enough and flip invert the idea that that AI gets marked. And it's like no, no, no. Authentic content gets marked because if it doesn't have it, then you then you question. It's reality.
1: Yeah. Well, so speaking of AI-generated content, Rex, and before we go, I was wondering if you would tell us a little bit about this more recent work you've done in the use of Gen AI for the generation of, of content for advertising, right? And, and what happened as you saw the early results? I mean, just talk, talk us through end-to-end because it is tectonic and I hope it's okay. We can talk about it on the podcast. I know it's about to be uncorked and more, more broadly disseminated, but maybe our listeners can get an early view of, of the breakthrough results that you generated there.
2: Absolutely. I think the, so it started with some of the work around the pandemic and trying to figure out how do you talk to such a diverse country about vaccinations and trying to get authoritative information and facts and a a company arts AI had volunteered to do some work with the ad council with me. And, uh, I had a, I had a sense that it should work better but I was really blown away when I saw forty-three percent lift, and then we rolled it out to more more states. And ultimately, it's uh, with some of our work at Brown University, we calculated we saved thirty-five hundred lives and kept to over twenty thousand people out of the hospital because of that ability to connect more of the information that 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 would resonate with someone and get them to want to learn more. Amazing. Um, so we then brought that to other marketers through MMA Global's Consortium for AI Personalization. And it turns out that the vaccine in states like Mississippi and Missouri is a hard sell. And so that was the 43%, that was a low mark. And that, oh, wow. uh, actually when we did it in commercial businesses, the average lift has been 107%. Wow. So doubling wow. of conversion rates. So um, the next piece of that was connecting arts AI with Claritas because they have got all this history of this great data and information that that isn't necessarily PII in some cases, you can do it without it, but this cohort data that could make the advertising better, And, and then connecting that with generative AI so that the generative AI could be fed profiles from Claritas and insights about from ArtsAI about which ads work when. And uh, and with synthetic voices, you can create uh, and, and open AI's you know, GPT-4, you can create great scripts hmm. and synthetic music, all of that comes together automatically. And the information is feeding back and learning from itself. So we're doing the first couple of studies now and and, and as I said, you know, the the ArtsAI Claritas a merger just happened, so uh, I had a vision of what they could do together, and I'm really excited to see them come together. And I'm I think we've we haven't announced who the first marketer is just yet, but the marketer, the CMO has said, "Hey, I need this to present in a board meeting in Q1." So let's go. Yeah. So come
0: soon. Wow. Good luck with all that, uh, Rex. This sounds fascinating as it kind of all comes together, right? So, it's gonna be
2: fun, and I know you guys are working on some really, really great closed loop systems. And so I think that is the generation that's coming now. Is this ability to, I mean, it's a little bit frightening because it's a very, very powerful tool. And to your point, it may, uh, it may, may make some products and brands that we might have questions about. Do you? Know, are they healthy? Are they good for us? You know, may, may help them accelerate. And so, I mean, that's, I think that's always the the struggle, which is how do you make sure that we do things and use things in a way that that's responsible. Um, And so, yeah, people have some thoughts about how do we help build that up? I mean, what the key thing that actually someone from Kroger and someone from PNG had told me is that they were showing the story that said, you know, we weren't trying to make a social statement or whatever, when he was talking about when he worked at PNG, but We, when we did the Dawn ads, we wanted to make sure we weren't just showing women doing the dishes, even though the majority of people who buy Dawn are are women. We wanted to show diverse representations. Mm -hmm. That was important for, 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 uh, so because we maybe we helped create the society where the majority of women exactly. So, how do we become positive and show more diverse uh, imagery? And he turned to me and said, How do we do that with AI Mm
1: -hmm. when it's
2: automatically learning from its feedback loop?
0: It's a fascinating I question. I do not know the
2: answer to that question. Yeah. I do not know the answer, but if someone, some of your listeners do, I want to make sure we solve that because otherwise we become
0: regressive with our whole use of AI and I don't want that to happen to to our society. Yep. And what a great note to end on. Um, Rex, thank you. It's been a fascinating, fascinating conversation. So much, so much interesting stuff. I hope our listeners enjoyed it too. Thank you for
1: joining us today on The Closed Session. Really awesome, Rex. Thanks for joining. Thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Don't forget to sign up for the newsletter to stay up to date in our latest episodes and news at superset.com. Thanks all for listening, and we'll see everybody next time.
0: Welcome to The Closed Session, How to Get Paid in Silicon Valley, with your host, Tom Chavez and Vivek Vidya. All right, so that was fun with Gal, wasn't it, Tom? I, I, that was awesome. So continuing in that tradition and uh, part two of our spotlight series for this, this episode, we have another Superset uh, uh, co-founder, Andrew Marshak, uh, with us. Uh, welcome, Andrew.
3: Yeah, hey. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. So uh, tell us a bit more about your story. How did you come to be at Superset and uh, your, your whole journey?
3: Yeah. See, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a startup guy. And when I say I'm a startup guy, that doesn't mean I worked at Google, which is a late stage startup. I mean, <laughs> I'm, I was employee number six, and then I was employee number five, and I wanted to keep moving up the chain. And this was a unique opportunity to be employee number one. Nice. Um, I've always been in the healthcare space, uh, specifically working in software as well as genomics and diagnostics.
0: Great. So uh, tell us a bit more about what our company, Headlamp Health, does.
3: Yeah. So Headlamp is a precision psychiatry data platform. What does that mean? Um, You know, when we think about mental health and psychiatry, one in five Americans has either depression or anxiety or a combination of the two. And our strong hypothesis is that those people don't all have the same thing. And our goal is to understand with data, what are the different types of depression? What are the different types of anxiety and uh, really enable us to treat it more precisely?
1: I love this premise, and it's glistened for for all of us for some time. But Vivek and I, especially, where we look at Headlamp, and it reminds us of a place we've been before. So, in a prior build out, there was this company called Crux, and in that context, we were helping brands like L'Oreal and Ticketmaster change the conversation. Instead of going after women between the ages of 18 to 45, no, 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 I want to meet. I want to target women over the age of 40 with three. Kids on the Eastern Seaboard who buy cream cheese for cooking and not for bagels, right? And so we actually brought that level of precision there to to that undertaking. We spent some time in the early paces over here at Headlamp. I remember Vivek and I were like it can't be the same. It's got to yeah. be a different thing. And then we kind of, with your help, realize, oh no, it's the same playbook. It's the same structure of the problem, right? And what's inspiring is instead of just as as with mental health, where people say depression. Well, no, I mean, that, that's, that's, that's much too broad. If we can, through data, transform that to an undertaking wherein you're actually treating, you know, DMN positive locus three defeatism, right? Totally. That's exciting. That's inspiring. A lot of work to be done, but it feels, it feels at its core, like a data management problem to us.
3: Yeah. And you know, there's, there's precedence for this, right? In healthcare where. You know, oncology 30 years ago, you used to have people get diagnosed with breast cancer and they get treated with broad-based chemo, blunt tools, right? right? And you fast forward to today, no one gets breast cancer anymore. You get diagnosed with a type of breast cancer and you get specific treatments designed for those subtypes. And when, when we talk about what we're doing in psychiatry, it's largely the same, but then people say, wait, wait, wait. There's no tumor in psychiatry, right? There's no tumor in mental health conditions. right? It's a data management issue. It's a data play. It's not a biology play as right. much. Um, so that's where I think, you know, you're, you guys bring the talent to the table on the data side and,
1: you know, world's our oyster here. Well, and, and we learn a ton from you every day about the dynamics of this industry. It is um, – this is an – also an interesting opportunity for us because you know unlike for example with gall okay we've been at checksum and we see this problem we deal with this problem every day headlamp is is a is a much more it's a different kind of leap certainly for right. for me and vivek there is an interesting uh, precedent also in the space right sometimes people say well you know how much health exp- experience do you have and or in our business how much you know go to market experience do you have in such and such? Well, sometimes decades of experiences, decades of bad habits. Totally. Right. So it's cool for us to be able to sort of show up with the chocolate. You've got the peanut butter. Let's do something awesome. Yep. So who are
3: who are the customers of, of Headlamp? Yeah. So I I kind of explained what our vision is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it all starts with the data. How do you get the data? And You know, one way we could go about it is we could say, hey, let's go out there and try to buy different data sets that exist today and put them together and see what we find. And we're doing that. (laughs) So don't get me wrong. We're doing that. Uh, But we're walking in saying that's not going to be good enough. We want more shots on goal. Um, And so we actually looked at the market and said, what are problems that frontline mental health providers and patients are facing today? And maybe we can solve for those and and build a data set and sort of a flywheel mechanism. Um, So we we did that. We looked at that space. And what do you know? There are tons of problems you can solve in that space, right? Um, You know, it starts with a patient walks in the door. And I'm sure we can all relate to this. You walk in, you're seeing a new doctor. And it's pretty much a, hey, how can I help you today moment when you walk in absolutely ridiculous concept, since there's a ton of data out there on you, who you are, etc. That's just not making it to the doctor at that time. Um, so the first part of our product was aimed to solve that we connect out to about 80% of EHRs across the US, we organize all of the data about a patient, and then we surface it both for that patient, so they have access to the record, but then also for that doctor so that when the patient walks in, they have a good picture of who that patient is up mm. to that point.
1: Well, and I, I start taking to copying your line, Andrew, when I describe headlamp to other people. If you're getting treated for depression or, or, or regardless, what was, what was your mood 22 days ago? Right. I have no idea. Right. Right. But it, the premise here is it is a knowable fact. It can't be, can be recorded and captured in concert with, what did I eat? Uh, how did I sleep? If chess, if I play chess, and that's a kind of a centering, calming. Did I play chess that day, and so on, right? In concert with all of the other kinds of pharmacokinetics and biological and genomic information that could be flown into a single system of intelligence, like the one we're building, right, to make this, um, to make it more possible for the clinician to be to develop treatments that are better for the patient. But ha- let's talk a little bit about the longer arc of this, and what do we do? for pharma companies after we've built that data mode.
3: Yeah. So before I get to that, okay, real quick, it's not just about the doctor. The patient's in the driver's seat. And the way we think about our value for the patient, any patient with depression, anxiety, they are banging their head against the wall trying to figure out why do I feel this way, mm-hmm. right? And so the whole model we have with our product is the more you tell us about yourself, the better we can answer why you might be feeling this way and what you can do about it. Right. And so we really think we've got, we're onto something there with the model, the UX model. Um, and if you think about combining that sort of soft data along with medical records and some other data that we're capturing as well, um, our end game is to work with pharma to, do what they did in oncology to ignite a renaissance of partnerships on drug development.
1: Well, and since we're not, so on our way still to the pharma point, we should note that it's not just another tracker app, right? Thousands of tracker apps in the app store. This is an experience that is, that is um, authored and shaped by the clinician, tuned to the individual needs of the patient, right? right, right. My earlier example, like chess. Well, if, if chess is something that this patient is, is a good marker of their overall mental uh, health that day. We can author that into the system so the patient is able to create that awareness that you're talking about, Andrew, but, but there's something really important in it here for the, cl- for the clinicians as well.
3: Yeah. I think the customizability is huge, right? Because, you know, all these apps out there today, you know, make you track your sleep. Well, what if I'm sleeping just fine? Right. Right? I don't actually need to track my sleep. My sleep isn't the problem here. We, we come at it and we say, what do you think might be the problem? Let's track those things. And that's, that can be uh, authored, like you said, by either the
1: provider or the patient themselves. Right. And so in the longer arc, what's in it for the pharma companies? What, what are they going to be doing on headlap? Well, you think
3: about 20% of Americans have one of these conditions that I mentioned. Um, Right now, they're not doing a very good job serving this market. Um, you know, In the '90s, we had SSRIs. That was the last big leap that this um, segment really took. Mm-hmm. And when we look at it today, all of those drugs are off patent. They're, pharma, frankly, isn't making money off these things anymore. They're looking to replace those with new drugs, mm-hmm. new compounds. And they can't really find anything, Mm -hmm. right? Literally the most promising new compounds are
1: are mushrooms. Right. Um, Well, it was instructive for me tagging along in some of our early conversations with pharma companies where you're uh, setting the table and leveraging networks and connections that you have with with those folks. But for me to just listen in and see the degree to which these pharma companies are flying blind, there's no data. Right. There's no clinical data that... Gives them even the tiniest clue, right, as to how which molecule could, could exert which kind of effect on the mental states. Of totally. A
3: and it, it's, it's not that they're bad at coming up with compounds, it's that they're bad at testing those compounds in the right populations, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So they keep throwing <laughs> out new compounds and then trying it in these very diverse patient populations, right? Mm-hmm. But as we said at the beginning, not all depression, not all anxiety is created equally. Right? So if they can understand, maybe this compound works really well for these types of depressed people, and this other compound we have works really well with these other depressed people.
0: Yeah. Coming back to something you said uh, earlier, Andrew, you're, you're a startup guy, yeah. right? And uh, employee number six, and now you're a co-founder. What's the, for our listeners, you know, who've also, who also might be interested in learning more about what that journey looks like. What are some of the differences between when you operate as employee number six, which is early, yeah. and you're a co-founder? What does that look like?
3: Loneliness. <laughs> I mean, when, when you're going from one, or in our case, three, um, I think that, that's a huge advantage here. You're going from that point where you're just trying to figure it out, and you're banging your head against, your, against the wall, and you don't have as many people to kind of play ping pong with, so to speak, that's, that's tough. Um, Honestly, once you're at that sort of six to 10 spot, I think that's the sweet spot. That's where the world's your oyster. You have a core team where you're running like a family. Um, And yeah, I think that's the key difference.
1: What's the uh, biggest surprise since, since joining up? over here with us at Superset and getting this company built.
3: Ooh, biggest surprise, biggest surprise. This might sound a little weird, but I didn't think I'd have as long of a leash as I have. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I was welcome. worried that I, yeah, <laughs> I was worried I'd, I'd sort of get pigeonholed into different routes and, and, uh, you know, I mean, you guys are, are wide open to ideas, um, and you're willing to take risks and, uh, I appreciate that. I mean, it, it really does feel like we're doing this in a garage, but we have more resources and stuff than we would in a garage.
0: Yeah, we're, you know, I think one of the things that I've been talking about with a lot of people outside is we, we keep saying we're true co-founders for real, which means, yes, you get a lot of autonomy and, uh, and we, we're serious about it, right? And so I'm glad to hear you kind of say that it's, it's, it's gratifying. You
1: know, know you're a real co-founder when we still fight.
0: Yeah. Yeah, (laughs)
1: that's right. You got to have the debates and you got to have the struggles, but, but yeah, no, it's important. Um, and this is the difference between employee number six and the co-founder. If I've said, if there's something going on in the company, there's no opportunity to externalize it. It's not somebody else's problem. It's your problem. Right. Right. So you, you bleed and sleep and think and, and eat and drink the company. That's the way it should be. Um, but I'm, I'm, you know, we can't. The other piece of, of a true co founder for real is like, no, I mean, you got to go. You can't be helicoptered over. You can't be neener, neener to death. Right. Just go.
3: I love what you just said because uh, one of my friends asked me recently, what's the work life balance like in a early startup? And I said,
1: it's work life integration, man. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Well, and I think,
1: look, as we close out, that's for listeners, you know, everybody I've said, you know, they see the movies and oh my God, everyone, there's a hackathon and people are doing shots at midnight and then suddenly everyone's rich. No, it ain't like that. No. <laughs> it's a pride swallowing, soul sucking long journey with imperfect work life balance, right? It's, and so it requires maniacal commitment and obsessive intensity. Over, over the course of the company. But, oh my goodness, it's so worth it. There's nothing better.
3: Yeah, I mean, you get to be in the driver's seat. That's the coolest part. I mean, you get to work passionately on what you like to do. So, it, you know, do you work a lot? Yes, but you also aren't working because it's
1: your life. Well, see, that's the life. thing. It's really not when you get to that point, and work isn't the right word for it. Right you know it's, it's a vocation it's um, it's passion. a habit it's a passion yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah well I think that's a great note to end on uh, for listeners who are aspiring to be co-founders uh, check us out it's, it's a lot of fun you have a lot of autonomy and, and, uh, and if you're curious about what Headlamp does go to our website and, or reach out and we're happy to talk to you as well thanks everyone, for listening thank you Andrew thanks thanks Andrew